You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop, and today, my uncle. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel, and we want to welcome you to episode number 63, which happens to be our next Jukebox episode, and as we established the last time we did one of these... The album for today is Michael Jackson's Thriller, submitted by our previous guest, Uncle Todd Sider. Zooming in all the way from Fort Wayne, Indiana, while we're recording in a tap room for the first time ever. The most complicated thing we've ever done, but it sounds (laughs) awesome. So, Todd, thanks for jumping on. Hey, thank you for having me again. This is great. So, before we get into why this album, we have five beers and only nine songs today. So, I think we probably to start with one of the beers because we're going to be whipping through these things pretty fast. So Abigail, tell everybody where we are today. Sure. We are at Lot 9 Brewing Company in Bluffton, South Carolina. We are here on vacation in Hilton Head and previously have reviewed two breweries on Hilton Head on the podcast, so decided to take a little detour off the island today and come to Bluffton. This is a really cute spot. The flight boards, I am absolutely delighted by. They are one-handed, so... Most places when we get our two identical flights, I have to go to the bar and come back to carry our two identical flights over. But these were both one handed. So that was very convenient. One of the owners is a welder and made these himself. They're gorgeous. They're very cool. We, as you said, have five beers on our flight and there are only six real beers on the menu. There's a cider and there are a couple, a beer mixed with a sparkling soda. But of the real beers, there are six and we're having five of them. So we're basically trying the whole menu, which is very exciting. Running the table today. (laughs) So why don't we start with our first one? So there are little engraved numbers on the rings and we are starting with the Ling Ling Lager. And I will quickly read a description of that. 5.1% ABV. Our American Amber Lager boasts toffee and caramel malt flavors followed by a dry, clean finish. Lagered for six weeks to ensure a smooth drinking experience. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Todd. Very sorry, Uncle Todd. (laughs) I'll I'll cheers with my decaf tea. Oh, lovely. (laughs) You'll have to give us a review of your tea as well. Wow, I like that. I'm not much of a lager guy, as we've established many times many on the times. podcast, but as lagers go, this is very good. This is very toffee It is toffee forward. That's so funny because a lot of beers that say they have a toffee flavor, I don't really pick up on that. It's a hard flavor for me to find in beer, but this one is distinctly toffee, so yeah, I really, really enjoy that. Very smooth. That ABV not too high for you, Abigail. I know you don't like the high ABVs. <laughs> no, this one was, I think, 5.1. Did I just read? Yeah, 5.1. Not too high for me. I don't think we're going to have anything too high on this flight today. I don't think so because it's like a blonde, a half wheeze and a couple of sours. It's a pretty light day. It's a light day, which is good because we're having five of them. That's right. That's (laughs) right. And the podcasts do go off the rails when the ABV is higher, just so everybody knows. So Todd, when you gave us the list of albums, you were all over the place musically. And I know your heart's in a lot of that Southern rock and a lot of those things. And the first two we pulled, the first one was basically a punk album, right? By the Pretenders. And now... Thriller by Michael Jackson. It seems so off the rails for you. Tell me why this was an album that you thought was good for us to review or why it's an important album for you. Well, I can tell you that this album was released just about eight months before I finished or seven months before I finished medical school and was going on to my residency in Chicago. And when I got to Chicago, as you can imagine, it was all over the airwaves. Not that I really had time to listen to the radio during my internship in general surgery, but Occasionally, I would hear things on the radio, and Michael Jackson stuff was on the air all the time. And your Aunt Kathy Abigail had gone, I think, 
just before that or shortly after that to a club med either in the Caribbean or in Mexico. And they were line dancing to beat it like every night oh, wow. in, the, in, the, in the disco <laughs> and stuff. So she said the place would just go crazy. So she was into it and listened to it. And if you went to a party, which was a very rare event for me when I was in residency, but those songs were played all the time. And when an album comes out and there are nine songs on the record, and yes, it was a record with a side A and a side B, and there's nine songs on their record and seven of them are released as singles, you know that's a crazy album. And that was, wow. from my understanding, that was Michael Jackson's goal with this album was to make every song on there good enough to be released as a single and he almost accomplished that and, and it was just such a great album i mean there's enough diversity in there enough variation in the songs including paul mccartney who some people are just avid fans of barry i know you're a big beatles i'm fan. on that and, list <laughs> and so you know it was just like this really crazy album and you know it was also very early days of mtv and michael jackson made these really crazy and overproduced videos with synchronized dancing and monsters and you know you name it you could find it in his videos and so it became an iconic release right from the start and it kind of grew on you as you listened to it even though i was a big blues music listener and there's not a big jump to rhythm and blues and some of michael jackson's undertones and things but this was true pop i mean this was made to be out on the radio and they were just kind of interesting and then, like i said I, I didn't have much free time to listen to music or go to a party and things but when i did there was michael jackson almost everywhere you went you're exactly right, Todd. It was impossible to miss this album. It was that much of a cultural touchstone for that year and a half that it really dominated the music scene. And the fact that the seven singles, like you said, just kept fueling the fire. And when we get to it, Thriller's the last of the seven singles. They didn't even want him to release that as a single. Ended up being this monster hit with this video that most people say is the best video ever made. Right. A 13-minute video. Every time they played on MTV, they had to use a quarter of an hour to do it. Oh my God. I mean, it's just amazing that that would get any airplay and it was on all the time. Yeah. What I remember about it the most was my roommate in medical school was a huge Prince and Michael Jackson fan. So I really heard this as an album much later than when it came out. I remember it mostly as singles and singles and singles and never heard it as a package until I went to medical school in the late 80s, Todd. But this is his sixth solo album. Of the other five, you wouldn't know hardly any of them. I think the most notable one was he did the soundtrack for a movie called Ben in the early 70s. About a rat. <laughs> it was about a kid who had rats as pets. Yeah, it's a weird <laughs> movie. And so right before this, in the late 70s, he released Off the Wall, which really reads more like a dance disco album. And just like you said, coming off of that, he wanted to get away from disco because disco was kind of fading and he wanted to create an album of pop hits. Now, this has a lot of elements of sort of dance disco in it. But like you said, there's enough musical diversity in here that it's not a dance disco album in its entirety. And the first single they released is very telling because it was the duet with Paul McCartney mm. as if they were going to lean into that collaboration as a way to get attention to the album. And when people heard the single, which came out before the album, there was a lot of criticism. Everybody thought this is going to be a horrible album. Why would they pick this one first, which is an interesting thing in retrospect. But I think the play there was to get attention to the album through using a former Beatle to draw some attention to the album because he hadn't had a really big hit. 
I mean, off the wall sold probably 10 million copies. So we say, oh, he hadn't had a big hit. This one has sold like 70 million worldwide. And I didn't buy my copy until you submitted this to the jukebox. <laughs> I had to buy a copy because I didn't even own this. I listened to it all the time That's with really my roommate. Funny. Yeah. The other thing I do want to bring up that you said, Todd, is it is an album with two sides and they are well-structured sides. And the way side one ends and the way side two starts and the way side two ends, that's all very thought out on the sequencing of this album. I got no problems with the way the songs are sequenced, except I think the middle third to the back half of the album is way better than the beginning, simply because that Paul McCartney thing pops up pretty early, which is kind of an odd track in the grand scheme of the album. But it's a great pick, Todd. At this point, did Michael Jackson already own the Beatles catalog? No, that's another great part of the story. So they recorded two singles in 19. 82 for a McCartney album that got released after this. And then they got back together to do the one for Michael Jackson's album. In one of those recording sessions, Paul McCartney gave him some advice that he should get into buying music publishing because it's a great way to turn your money into just ongoing money. It turns out Michael Jackson made so much money off a of thriller that he was able to outbid Paul McCartney for oh, the Beatles publishing. That's so evil. Yeah, and they had a big rift over that, and they never did resolve that, and Michael Jackson's estate still owns it, and then there's some weird rule about it, reverts back to the artist after 50, something like that, where some of the early Beatles songs are going to come back to the writers, McCartney and those guys, because it's been so long. Wow. But they never did resolve that rift that was created by that. So they had this amazing partnership there in the early 80s, and that just blew it up because Jackson outbid him for the that, that is so evil and it sneaky. Is pretty, it is pretty evil. And the other thing is that you, you knew you made it big when Weird Al Yankovic starts parodying your songs. And he did, a, I think, a couple of Michael Jackson's songs from this album. Beat It was Eat It. And there was one other that I can't remember. But I think he did I'm Fat off of the subsequent album Bad. But he did that almost instantly, Todd. That Weird Al album, which we reviewed... I'm sorry, we didn't review it. Our sister podcast, Doors That's on right. Corks, reviewed that. But that Weird Al album came out also in like 1984. And so there's a lot of songs from 83 on there. There's a, a police song on there. And then there's this one from Michael Jackson. It's really interesting that the timing of the release kind of helped pick the songs. But yes, absolutely. And he graciously gave permission. Michael Jackson never really fought it or anything. Just said, yeah, go for it. He, he was one of the guys who... Uh, kind of ponied up right away. It's There's fair a, use. If it's a parody, he could do it anyway. But Weird Al's always been good about, if they weren't interested, he wouldn't do it. So. Yeah. And that video, the Eat It video, is a shot-by-shot -shot recreation of the Beat It video. It's so funny. Yeah, it was very well done. So I watched the Weird Al parody biopic. We talked about that um, weird. And obviously it was a very exaggerated and many parts of it were not true biopic. But one of the plot points was that Michael Jackson stole beat it from Weird oh, Al. that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cute. Yeah. So Uncle Todd, you mentioned that this album kind of grows on you over time. That was definitely the experience I had. I really didn't particularly care for this album the first few times I listened to it. It is, I thought, very disco dancey. I mean, all the songs have a great beat to them. You can always move your body to them. But in terms of just sitting and listening to the music, I didn't find it particularly engaging. And it did grow on me over time. I think probably because it's so catchy and it gets stuck in my head. I can always have a piece of one of these songs playing in my head. And so I grew more fond of it over time. Totally agree that the strongest part is the middle. My top three are the middle three songs of the oh, album, wow. okay. which are also three of the songs I knew prior to doing this deep dive into it. 
But I don't have any nostalgia or any love for Michael Jackson, really. You were not really a fan. So it's not like I would have heard it because you were playing it around right. the house. That's true. And then like his scandal with the little boys happened like when I was pretty young. And so my first time hearing about Michael Jackson that I can remember was in reference to him allegedly sexually assaulting children. So my whole life, I've never been a Michael Jackson fan. He's always just been like a weirdo creep in my head. Oh, wow. And you're like, yeah, he has a good song here and there, but I've never really had much love for him. So this was a really interesting <laughs> experience to me because I'd never sat down and actually listened to an album. And yeah, it's totally fine. I don't think I will, after this, sit down and listen to this album all the way through. But the individual songs, some of them are very fun. And I definitely like moving and grooving to the rhythm of this album. Yeah, I uh, had the same experience you did, Abigail. I can't wait to move on from this album, Todd, in the sense that <laughs> I catch myself singing bits and pieces of the seven singles. It's interesting, the two that were in singles are the two I never catch myself singing. And I don't know if that's cause and effect or what the story is there, but I will be randomly singing lines from those seven songs around the house and kind of dancing. So your point about it, it's hard to sit in a chair and listen to yeah. this album. You really feel like you should be up moving when this album is on, regardless of what it is you're singing. So it is really, I think, a dance-focused album. I did notice as I listened to it this time that the rhythms and the melodies are catchy and everything's very singable and danceable. It does sound like an album from the 80s, though. There's a lot of uh, production. Yet it makes you think early 1980s. Well, that's Quincy Jones' influence, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's perfectly played for what the early 80s music scene was. It's really well produced. The other thing is, I'd never really listened to it with headphones. And there's a lot of layers of instrumentation and background singers and mm -hmm. things inserted. Even to the point where you hear Michael Jackson singing his own backing tracks from times. He'll be inserting things while he's singing the main line. It's a really layered, layered album. A lot of work clearly went into producing this album. And uh, I think Quincy Jones had done... I'm not sure if he did Off the Wall with him. I think it was Off the Wall that he did. So that was the first one, right, where they worked together. And I think they worked together for a very long time after that. Abigail, your point also about that thing, we when we lived in L.A. right before we left is when that trial happened in Santa Barbara. Because that was covered on our local news like nonstop because yeah. that was an L.A. news story. And so, yeah, you couldn't like, escape that either. Kids talk. My cohorts were like talking about it in school. So... That was all I knew about Michael Jackson. It was a really big deal. Yeah. There are a lot of physicians with a lot of demons and skeletons in their closet. It's just, it goes along with, I think, the creative mind sometimes that they have these really strange egos that whatever they do is right or however they perceive things. And, and he just got caught up in that. And, and he had so much money that he thought he could get away, I think, get away with anything that he wanted to do. But there are a lot of people in the music industry that had similar, look at Phil Spector. I mean, who would have thought that he would have killed somebody? You know, I mean, that's there's just craziness in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Well, and he also got to such a level, Todd, that nobody around him would tell him no. Right. So even if that was an innocent thing that he was doing, it's not a good look to have a bunch of kids spending the night in a grown man's house. But nobody around him would have the power to say, don't do that. It just yeah. looks bad. So whether it was all innocent or not innocent, it looked horrible. Right. And then the other thing was, you know, he came out of a really weird childhood, right? He was a very young performer. And if you read stories about his father, not 
not the greatest of guys. So there was probably some sort of maybe physical abuse or maybe just threatening stuff about performing. It's almost like he never grew up into adulthood. He never had to. That was the whole thing, right? His compound was called Neverland. Like yes. he identified with Peter Pan and like that was his whole thing. Yeah. And part of that was that he always sang in that very high voice. Yeah, so part of it yeah. was that he had to maintain that. So there's a lot going on with that guy. And obviously, if you watch his appearance over time with the plastic surgery yeah. and stuff like that, you know that there's some self-esteem issues going on that are way deeper than we have the capacity to talk about today. Doesn't make him a better or worse artist. I mean, to your point, Todd, Brilliant art comes from troubled people sometimes. Right. Some of the best art comes from troubled people. There's also the aspect of a lot of these artists, whether they're music artists or visual artists, that have substance abuse problems because they're trying mm -hmm. to self-medicate because they know there's something not quite right. They're not sure yeah. what it is, but they feel a little bit calmer and sedated when they're on whatever they're on. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that creative mind not being quite wired the same way that the average mind is. And it yeah. it sometimes leads to stuff like this, unfortunately. I totally agree. But he was brilliant. Yeah, but at the end, to your point, you know, he had physicians giving him general anesthetics to sleep and stuff like wow, that, which geez. is, again, nobody's saying that's not a good idea or no, right? It's like, oh, sure, we could do that. We could set that up in your home because when you have unlimited money, yeah, we can set up a bed and monitor you and have you sleep on propofol and all this kind of stuff, as opposed to saying, well, that's not a healthy choice. Why don't we explore that a different way? <laughs> yeah, being supervised by a cardiologist, no less. Right. What experience does a cardiologist have giving propofol and monitoring? monitoring somebody. They might have watched right. the anesthesiologist give it while they were doing a procedure, but I guarantee you there aren't very many cardiologists around that have privileges in a hospital to administer deep sedation. Absolutely not. It just doesn't happen. The other thing I remember, Abigail, is I was in Gainesville the night he died. I was actually at Calico Jacks, which was the new oh, age CJs. Yeah. I had some contracts up there in a couple of the rural counties outside Gainesville. And so I would go up and I'd stay in Gainesville and I'd drive out and do the work. And I was staying in Gainesville and I went to this restaurant that I knew from when I was there as a student. And I was sitting there that night that he and um, Farrah Fawcett both died the same night. Oh. And you don't remember Farrah Fawcett dying because it was like bad day to die. Nobody's going to really remember you because Michael Jackson died the same day. And so all the tributes were about Michael Jackson. And it was like, oh, and Farrah Fawcett died. That's a bummer. It is a bummer. It's really kind of sad because she had a really cool career that would deserved a little bit of attention when she died. But the headlines were just astronomical about his death at 51, I think he was, when he died. Wow. It was 09. I, cause I, yeah, it was, it was I think 2009, I was at, right? I think I was at Blue Star when it happened. Was it over the summer? It was over the summer, Yeah, Absolutely. I think I was at camp no. when it happened. You, you bring up another thing that you couldn't avoid back in the day. Um, the Farrah Fawcett poster in her little red uh, bikini. Rust-colored. It was a rust-colored uh, one-piece, but... Yeah, but it was <laughs> everywhere. You probably couldn't go into many teenage boys' rooms and not see it. It's iconic. Yes. That poster's iconic. I don't think I know that she one. She had the big hair. Put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'll find it and put it... I'll do some research and try to track that poster down. Yeah, Todd, yeah, uh, some research. A little, a little research. I'm sure it's on the internet multiple places. I'm positive I'll be able to find it. That was Charlie's Angels era, I think, that poster. It's oh, around wow. the time she was on Charlie's Angels. Yep. The OG Charlie's Angels. The OG. OG, right. She was one of the Not my angels. No. Well, she was OG even on that show because they kept rotating people out over time. But she was one of the three originals, even on the OG series. And your cousin Jacqueline's name comes from one of the other OG angels, Jacqueline Smith. 
There you go. Really? I just like the spelling of that name from Jacqueline Smith and figured that'd be a nice way to spell Jacqueline's name when she doesn't have to have the Q's and the E's and the L's and the, all these letters in there. So Uncle Todd closing all the circles oh tonight. He's goodness. looping everything back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing it. All right. Well, what do you think? Shall we? Uh, Should we get into the track by track? Yeah. Can we do rate one this first, then, or you want to do let's a track? Let's do one and, and okay. then rate the beer because then we'll do two songs per beer. As everybody knows, we have no format. So that whatever you whatever you want to do. To self-medicating. To self-medicating. <laughs> Sorry, Todd. With that in mind, we're going to start with track one. Want to be starting something. Yeah, that one makes me want to start something, I'll tell you. <laughs> a dance party. I, well, you saw me over there dancing by the computer while I was doing that. Just so you know, this was the fourth single that was released on the album in May of uh, 1983. It ended up being a number five hit on the oh Billboard my. Hot 100. By the way, all seven singles were in the top ten. Oh, my. <laughs> so, At the same time? No. Every time they were released, they ran up the chart, and they all finished somewhere in the top ten. That's pretty amazing. I don't have, like, how many weeks and all that sort of thing. So this was my On the Cusp song. You know, it plays like a dance track, although what I read about it was that he actually wrote this for his sister, Janet, to sing. And it's more about newspaper gossip. You want to be starting something. Oh, and so it's about the rumors and things that were being said in the press about the family. And she did not want to record it. And so he ended up recording it. But it's interesting. There's some lines in here that actually are going to tie into a song later on, Billy Jean, because that Billy Jean song when we get to, it's about this woman who accused him of father and a child. And so there's a couple places in some of the other songs where that gets referenced, which lends more credence to that as a real thing to mm. me, that instead of being one song about it where you can kind of go, well, that's a fictional take on something. The fact that it's sprinkled in some of these other songs always makes me go, well, I wonder if there was a little more truth to that than they really let on. Was there an actual news story like that? No. There wasn't, I don't think. It was more, he was accused by a particular woman about being the father of this child. But I know that his answer to the accusation was the song Billy Jean. Uh, yeah. And so the other little mentions of it to me are what makes it a little more weird. And not to spoil anything, but I read Billy Jean as a confession. Potentially, when so, you read the lyrics. When you yeah. read the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is the perfect opening track to this album. So interestingly, I hadn't heard this song previously. The four that I have heard on this album were Thriller, obviously, Beat It, Billie Jean, and PYT, parentheses, Pretty Young Thing. But I didn't know that Beat It and Billie Jean were on this album because... 
I hadn't ever listened to this as an album, obviously. I knew Thriller was on this album because it's the title of the album. And so I don't know why I thought that the whole album overall would have more of a spooky, creepy vibe. It truly is just that one song. But he leans so hard into it in that song that it feels totally out of place on the album, but I love it. And I wish he had done more throughout the rest of the album with that because I think the vibes are so cool in that song. So when this song came on, I was like, oh, this is just like your standard pop dance track. I can imagine all the clubs in the 80s, like this must have been on the top of their playlist. And for great reason, it's a great great dance track. It always makes me want to move. And you mentioned earlier about his high-pitched voice. I'm not a particular fan of his voice. I mean, I know he's a great singer, like technically he's very accomplished and to hit the high notes is quite amazing. I just don't really care for it. And in this song, it doesn't bother me as much. I think he's singing in maybe a slightly lower register. And so it doesn't bug me, the sound of his voice. So I really like this song. It's not in my top three though. Yeah, I kind of take this song as being first on the album, almost to tie into the fading disco era. It almost has that syncopated beat that was prevalent during the heyday of disco with Gloria Gaynor and the Hughes Corporation, you know, and all those songs that were, you talk about everywhere, they were everywhere back in the 70s and early 80s. And then this kind of ties into that. And the album, if I remember correctly, kind of fades away from that typical syncopated rhythm that was present in this song and just how it makes me feel anyway. But yeah, I think it was a great song to start off the album. I thought you were going to say something about the digital drum track. Well, there's a lot of digital drum. There's a lot of digital <laughs> hand clapping, you know, whether it's good or bad. It's in there a lot. But I think the drums on this one are really fun. And that's where the syncopation comes from. And, and I love the drums on this one, despite them being digital. <laughs> Your point, Todd, about it coming very much out of the disco era. So it's interesting to me that the concept was let's make an album that's less disco. And there are a number of tracks on here that read this way. It almost bridges the gap between what was going on in the 70s and what he does later on in the 80s. This really does borrow a a lot of elements from the disco era mm -hmm. for some of the songs but that's what makes them great dance songs that's why disco was such a popular fad in the late 70s was it was all great dance music so i agree with you it's a lot of fun but it really does read like disco dance 100 you know and a lot of the uh synthesized music too I, there's so many different types of synthesized music on this song and it works you know sometimes it doesn't work when you've got so many of those fake music tones coming at you, including the, the digital drums and synthesizers and all of that. It just doesn't, this seems to work better than most. Yeah, and that's what I was saying when you listen to it with headphones, Todd, all that stuff's layered incredibly well. It does read very well as a package, even though there's a lot of different layers of digital music going on. And that's in a lot of the tracks. You know, Abigail, you were talking about Thriller, and part of the fun of Thriller when we get to it is there's all those kind of horror sound effect noises and mm -hmm. all the stuff going on in the background. That's just a variation on what he's done on every song, in every song there's a lot of those kinds of elements in it sometimes they're just synthesized musical tracks to augment or supplement what's going on with the basic instruments thriller just uses a different kind but the whole album's built that way and it's a lot of fun so i actually have an entry in the abigail hummel school of speaking smartly about music on this song and it was a part you didn't play so if you could play this song i want to be starting something from 453 
Okay, now I need you to go to Spotify and search for the song Don't Stop the Music by Rihanna and go to 252. So I don't know if this one really counts because I'm pretty sure she just lifted that. She even has a hee-hee in there. That's absolutely got to be a sample, it right, It has huh? to be. <laughs> I, I would say that you can call Michael Jackson a lot of things, but I would never call him someone who's stolen someone else's lines or music or rhythm or beat or any of those things. He was so original. It doesn't surprise me that Rihanna would lift that right from his song. But I've never heard anybody accuse Michael Jackson of the same. So it, it's just amazing. But you got it, you know, Abigail, that was right on. Well, and I didn't look into it. I don't know if she used that with permission or if there was any scandal around that. But as soon as I heard Wanna Be Starting Something, I was like, oh, that's a Rihanna song. <laughs> so you recognize it in the Rihanna song. I had heard the Rihanna song first. Oh, how about that? Yeah, that's a good pickup. You know, she's from that generation that will actually sample and yeah. credit people. And I'm sure she didn't just steal it. I'm sure it was homage more than anything else. Definitely. I bet if you go look at the credits for that song that you're going to find that there's some notation that, you know, courtesy of Michael Jackson or something. Yeah. So anyway, there's your Rihanna for the day. <laughs> Abigail, look, Todd, Oh, we have the Brewers going to jump on for a minute. So um, if you need to take a break for a few minutes or you want to listen in. Yeah, I'll listen in. Awesome. Well... We gotta be starting. There's always something, right? We gotta be starting something, Abigail. Beer's kicking in. We are delighted to have a second guest on this show, <laughs> who uh, we in a pre-interview learned a lot about. <laughs> a pre-interview is a very nice way to call it. Well, we are delighted, as we said before, to have Walter Trifari, the founder and brewmaster here at Lot Nine Brewing Company. Walter. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, this is so awesome. It's my, <laughs> this is my second time on a podcast. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Were we Today? also the first Today. time on the podcast? Yeah. For those of you who don't understand, we forgot to turn the record on for part of the interview, so we're backtracking and doing it over. Thanks for having us out here. The space oh, is fantastic. Thank and you. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous space. How long have you guys been here? About a month, over three years. Which puts us right smack in the middle of the pandemic, right? That's when we opened. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was no choice in the matter. We had both feet in, construction has started, and we all decided collectively that we got to see what's going to happen. We got to open the doors. <laughs> we got to get some money going. So you opened in the middle of the pandemic. Were you able to conduct any business at all in that time yep. frame? We did our masks and the social distancing as best we could, as, as what the law said, and uh, we opened and people flooded in here. Uh, we had a great grand opening. People also brought chairs set right outside if they felt com more comfortable out there, and the community definitely embraced us and uh, we had a great grand opening, honestly. That's awesome. Some of the places down where I live in Florida did curbside. You could get a crowler and that sort of thing. Were you able to do that at all during the pandemic? When we opened up, we had a very small brew system. We were only making a barrel, a batch, so two, two big kegs. Oh, so wow. It was tight. And uh, we thought, well, we're going to try this and then buy something bigger. Um, let's just proof of concept, I guess, right? So we didn't have a lot to offer to go. So it was all sold in-house as we opened. Did you have a brewing background before you started here? Or were you a homebrew? Yeah. How did you come but, to no, this? No, funny enough, I homebrew once with my dad when he was homebrewing and then you know bottled bottles with them that's about my experience in homebrewing but i jumped right into professional brewing back in 97 um, i got a job at a brew pub up in the northeast in connecticut with my cousin who was actually my boss at the same time and uh that's where i started my career called john harvard's brew house up in uh, new england oh wow 
So you've been doing this a very long time, right? Pushing 30 years? Yeah, it was over 25 for sure. Yep. What do you think your strengths are as a brewer? What do you what do you like to brew? What do you think you're good at brewing? You know, I enjoy German styles of beer. You know, American IPAs are no doubt and stouts and stuff. I do like lagers. I really enjoy making really good lagers. My strengths, I guess, would be, you know, just always making something that has a background of the style of the beer. So when I started brewing, if you didn't brew the style, other brewers and whatnot would kind of chop your beer apart, honestly. You know, it was a, it was like a boy. Did you see how hazy that Pilsner was, or or Pale Ale? <laughs> and nowadays, everything has flipped. So it's definitely challenging for me at times to change my process or what I grew up doing. So that's challenging. Um, but at the same time, now that I've got my hand on it, on the pulse of it, I can easily do both. But it all comes back to simplicity. You know, I always think that wins out, in my personal opinion, and making just really good, clean beer, just free from any defect possible. Obviously, we ordered a flight for today, and we, we're drinking five of the six things on tap. So you have, you know, like six taps. And uh, Is that pretty standard to have, like, do you have six core beers and that's all you make? Or do you have a rotation of styles? We, we're completely uh, focused more on rotation, uh, you know, you know, as the three years have gone by, we certainly, you know, our Buxom Blonde is always going to be on, our Queen Sour, our Sitting in Limbo Sour. Those are staples as well as our Hazy IPA. Now, you caught us on a day where we're just a little light on, on some beers <laughs> that, you know, they weren't exactly ready to put on this week. So we, we'd rather just let the lineup go down a tap or two just to make sure we're putting on fresh, good beer. But I think next week we got a Rice Lager double IPA oh, and, then wow. a, and then a Hazy coming right back. So we may have a little blip in the uh, 12 taps, but we'll generally have about 10 taps on uh, any given day. Okay. Nice. What do you think uh, some of your favorite beers are for people who come in? What are the what are more popular ones? The Hazy Hurt So Good IPA is, it's hard to keep it on tap, honestly. The batches go by so fast. Wow. So that's a struggle, but it's a good struggle. And that just won the Best of the Southeast in a competition. So we're super stoked on that. Congratulations. Our Queen Sour just won Best of the Southeast as well. We have that on our flight. So we, we've, we've won some accolades, you know, as we opened in the last three years. Yeah, that's great. Great. Which have been very exciting. Only go up from here, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's hope, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know that uh, there's a couple of breweries out this way. There's a few on the island. Do you find that you're kind of collaborative with those or competitive with those? How does that play out locally? Uh, probably need to do a little more collaborating. We're just so in-house busy that it's it's just hard to get out and do stuff. There are just a few, like you said, around here, and they're all great folks. We all get along pretty well and have a lot of fun. You know, when we have time to drink a couple of beers together, we do we do laugh a little. So um, yeah, we do need to get out and do some more collaborating though, I'll tell you what. Which begs the question, in a community like this, is this mostly locals who have come out here or is there a lot of uh, tourism traffic through a place like this? Definitely locals. I mean, we got a really good local following. We got a couple neighborhoods just really adjacent to us. So there's some golf cart opportunities to just oh, hop nice. a golf cart and buzz <laughs> on down here. And they definitely do that. I mean, they have supported us through thick and thin. So what you might not see today, uh, there's no TVs here and we'll have regulars come in and they're excited. There's no TVs. There's actually a chance to put down my phone, talk to the person next to me. And the art of conversation is something we didn't expect to see blossom from here. But the regulars are meeting new regulars and exchanging phone numbers, coming back as friends. And at the same time, we are getting enough tourist traffic, either venturing off the island, because that's where the, generally they all are, to see some stuff downtown, the ARC stuff downtown, or just come down here to check out breweries. You know, you're you're not the only one. Obviously, right, you go, right. go just check out all the breweries <laughs> in town. And everybody just easily chimes in. It's a very welcoming feel in this place. Even if you're a regular and you're out of town and you're asking a question about somewhere to eat or go see or do, and people are really forthcoming and it's super 
super refreshing. That's great. I, I always find them more inviting than a regular bar. Yeah. And they're all unique. They're all different. You know, you say, oh, we're going to go to Lot 9. I didn't know what to expect when I pulled up. It's a new adventure. Right? I know what a TGI Fridays looks and like. And you know the same beers yeah, they have on or whatever. stuff. Right. So to me, it's always a bit of an adventure. You know, you're driving around, you get the address in on your GPS, you come <laughs> around the corner, and is it an industrial complex when they're in a bay? Is it a well-built, well-established place in Absolutely. a cool corner of town? It's a lot of fun to do it because everybody's different. And here we are, tucked all the way in the back of a parking lot with yeah. a little brick building. But a gorgeous brick building. Mm-hmm. The outside looks inviting. The waterway across the way. It's such a beautiful space. It's like the best little kept secret in Bluffton. The best kept secret in Bluffton. You heard it here first. <laughs> That's oh. right. Well, I don't know if they heard it here first, but eventually they're going to hear it here, right? Anything you want to share as far as how people can find you, social media, anything like that? Events coming up you want to plug or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, September 16th, we're doing our Oktoberfest. It's a really good time. We have a lot of, you know, the classic Oktoberfest games and, and whatnot going outside. It's big tents and we throw down and have a great time that party. Otherwise, lot9brewing.com is our website. Hit us up on any other social media. I mean, that's how it's going. Are you on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, Facebook, and Instagram, all those. X. X, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. We will get all those things in the show notes Absolutely. for you. And we're going to enjoy the rest of these beers. And we thank you so much for taking yes, the time. Thank we thank you. Know. Very welcome. And we hope we did as well the second time as we did the first time. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you did excellent. So we're listening to music today. We yeah. are listening. Oh, there's a good question for yeah. you. So we're listening to Michael Jackson's Thriller. Do you have oh any thoughts on the album Thriller? I think about Thriller. I think about you know being much younger and... <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. I think it was what would become my brother-in-law, my sister's uh, boyfriend at the time, had got the album. And it was all the rage. And I kept pestering her to have him burn a tape of it for me. Oh, wow. I wanted to hear it so bad. And for some reason, every time I think of Thriller, I think about that day she came home with the tape and I was like, oh my God, yes, here it is, Aww. you know, and listening to the album over and over and over. Wow. And over. Yeah. So you were, you were in early on this one. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, yeah, when it came out, it was, if you were around, it, you wanted to hear that thing. Well, yeah. you couldn't escape it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, true. Uh, for, yeah. For with the video day. on MTV and all that, you get, yeah, it was exciting stuff. That's the first time in a long time we've surprised the brewer with the question of, when was the first time you've heard of Michael Jackson? <laughs> How could you not know, yeah, right? But right. That, that was a pretty easy answer for a change. We, yeah, we stumped definitely. a few people over the episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've listened to some of your podcasts. Some of the ones I didn't know. I, I oh, didn't really? You oh. would have stumped me a little bit, but I'm, a, I'm definitely love beer and music together. I mean, there's we don't mash in a brew here without the Grateful Dead playing in the background or something. Nice. And just well, the playlist out loud. since we've been here has been phenomenal. Yes, you it know, has. In fact, we're hearing some songs from albums we've reviewed in the past, <laughs> which is awesome. But yeah, the whole concept was for us to exchange albums or get suggestions from other people to talk about as a way to discover new music. I'll say different music because a lot of the stuff I've submitted, obviously, is older music. Some of the albums are pretty obscure or pretty modern, but it's been a lot of fun. And adding the element of coming out and being able to do it on location is such a hood. So we Thank you so much for letting yeah. us take the time and steal part of your brewery for the afternoon. Happy to have you, and uh, thanks for including us. It's, awesome. it's been a lot of fun. Well, thanks again to Walter for jumping on. He's going to hang out with us here for a little bit, so hopefully he may have some thoughts on the remaining eight tracks if he hangs in that long. I don't know if that beer he's drinking is going to last that long, though. <laughs> he actually, he's drinking the Hef, which we have next. We're going to drink that one. I next. know. You think he'll rate it with maybe, us on Maybe, maybe. <laughs> We've never rated one with the actual brewer here. That would be fun. Let's have the last sip of this one and give it a rating. So as a reminder, this was the Ling Ling Lager. This was a 5.1% American Amber. And I really enjoyed it. Like I said up front. I did too. The toffee. I often struggle to find toffee flavors in beer, even when they are advertised. And this one definitely had toffee notes. So I really enjoyed that. Easy to drink. 
obviously, we had a very small pour, but I had no trouble finishing it. No. I had to save just the teeniest you saw. last sip. Boy, after the <laughs> false start on the interview, I've been really milking that beer <laughs> for quite a while. So I am going to give it a 3.75. And I'm going to give it a 3.75 as well for Walter's purposes. I'm not a huge lager fan. I like them. I'm a more of an ale guy. I'm more of an IPA guy, so I'm a bold flavor guy because I don't have any sense of smell. So I rely a lot on tastes. And so uh, the stronger flavored beers are more in my wheelhouse. But when I get a good lager, I like it. That's a very good lager. And to Abigail's point, there's that extra toffee notes, very obvious, mm-hmm. which, you know, people put toffee in the liner notes of beers all the time. And I'm like searching I never for it. Taste I have it. a hard time finding yeah. it. But that's very obvious. Yeah. So yeah, for I'm going to sure. give that one a 375. Excellent. Which brings us to our second beer, Lil Slice of Heffen, which I have the description for. This is a 5.5% ABV, traditionally brewed with all German malts and hops while fermenting with true Weizen yeast. Look for a cloudy appearance, high carbonation, banana slash clove notes, and a dense, rocky head. Prost. Prost. Eins, zwei, drei, Sufa. Mmm. High carbonation is right. Effervescent. The comment that Walter made about true to style. Yes. It is banana That's what I was going to say. We've had a lot of hefwees. We go, oh, look for the banana and right. you'll be searching for days. Well, and then there's some that are like too banana-y, but this is pretty perfect. Well, I have a question for Walter. Does that banana flavor come from esters in the beer or where does it come from? Through the fermentation, the Weissen yeast actually produces that clove banana quality. And depending on what kind of temperature range you play with during fermentation can definitely affect uh, having a lot of it or having a little of it or predominance. Uh, certainly the different strains can play a part. Some do produce a little more clove than banana. This strain does an equal amount and playing with the temperature is how we kind of got the banana to come out. So no actual fruits added. So it's all just the, the wild yeast that's in the uh, Weissen strain. Do you try different yeast, same recipe and alter the yeast from time to time to see how that changes the flavor of the beer? Or once you have the recipe nailed down, you're like, okay, I'm only going to use this strain of yeast. I'll talk to the yeast supplier most of the time. I, I don't just dabble in a batch and a batch and, and compare them. I'll go off some liner notes that they have in their experience and then play with it. If it didn't stand up to what I want, then yeah, I'm going to switch it up again. But generally I can nail it down with just a conversation back and forth with the yeast supplier. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you for that question from Todd Sider all the way out in uh, <laughs> Fort Wayne, Indiana. Caller number seven. Caller number seven from Fort Wayne. Bringing back my biochemistry days. I did want to ask as the arbiter of all things mouthfeel, how you felt about the descriptor dense rocky head. Well, I think we might have let ours sit a little too ours long. Ours probably sat too long yeah. for that. Long, you can yes. See lacing. Yes. So rocky. Rocky would be, you know, a big, uh, I say you compare it to like a Guinness, a tight, creamy head. Ah. You know, a big rocky head would be just a big frothy white head. Lots of bubbles. Well, a lot of bubbles, yeah. Okay. Holding up the protein in the beer. Got it. Because I do, I mean... I really like the level of carbonation in this one. I, it, it feels pleasant on the tongue. I agree with you. <laughs> that would be the mouthfeel, right? That would be the mouthfeel. Right. This is so weird because I've never had people taste the beer in front of me like this. And, <laughs> and describe <laughs> oh, it in yeah, such it's, detail. It's really strange. <laughs> because we have no format, this is exciting for I know, us this to is have. Really cool. This is very interesting to me. Poor Todd's over there like, I want to talk about track two. And we're here ruminating over the beer. So we're going to move on to track two, Baby Be Mine. I'm by your 
So that was track two, Baby Be Mine. This was one of the two songs on the album that was not a single. Really? Yep. And uh, this is my eighth favorite song on the album. (laughs) So this is one from the bottom on this one. I'm not a big, big fan of this one. In fact, we were listening to this in the car and mom goes, this is your least favorite, right? And I went, you're very close. Wow. Love that she... Knew Love that, that she though. knew that. Yeah. It's like a slower tempo disco dance track. There's nothing about the lyrics that really stand out to me. This is not one that I sing, you know, when I'm wandering around aimlessly. This is not one that pops into my head. And so I think that's part of why it ends up in the bottom. It's not a standout in any way on an album of standouts, right? Right. And that's why I think it's well placed in the number two slot because you don't really need to have a memorable song in the number two slot if you have a great song in the first slot. So it's not, I don't think it's poorly placed or anything. I agree with you. This is probably my seventh favorite. <laughs> <laughs> we ranked the whole album, Todd. There's only nine On tracks. On a nine track album, it's really easy to make just a list, right? Right. This is one where his high voice, to me, feels like he's straining a little bit, and I just don't care for his voice in this song. What I do like is the backup singers who are like, dun, 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 dun. like the fast bit that they sing, I enjoy that. But other than that, yeah, it's a dancey song. It gets me moving. It's a perfectly fine song. But it is in a one-two slot. It's like two dance tracks back to back. So now you're starting to think, oh, is this all going to be like off the wall? Is it all going to be a dance track album? It's not. But with those two back to back, it makes you think of that. Yeah. He got the uh, dance songs out of the way on this album. Now you can get into the other style and things that he wanted to um, shock the world with or however his attitude was. But he wanted to make... I think he said he wanted monster hits from this album, and he got it. Monsters, an interesting um... monster hits, yeah. <laughs> given given that one of the monster hits is actually about maybe? a monster. Well, you're saying that about the gets the dance tracks out of the way, which is kind of true. The two most disco-like are the first two tracks, which makes the next song such a weird placement to me in this album. Yeah. Coming off those two tracks, I think it's a weird placement. You think track three is in a weird place? I do. Would you put it later? I probably would put it later. I don't know where, but I think I would move it later. Hmm. Okay. I didn't really bump on the placement of track three. Should we play a little bit of track three? Why don't we play a little bit of track three? While we're talking about it. Todd, did you have anything else on track two you want to say? No, it was a relatively uh, unmemorable song, if you will, from this album, for me. That's what I thought. I didn't think it it was not a standout. It's meh. (laughs) It's meh. (laughs) Walter's over here laughing hysterically. He's like, what have I gotten myself into? All right. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the duet, which is track three, The Girl Is Mine. She walks right in my dreams Since I met her from the start I'm so proud I am the only one Who is special in her heart The girl is mine The doggone girl 
is yours, not mine. Sending roses and your silly dreams, really just a waste of time, because she's mine. All right, so that was The Girl Is Mine, the famous duet with Paul McCartney that we talked about earlier that they shared a recording with each other, and ultimately this is why Michael Jackson owns the Beatles catalog now. I have a lot of thoughts on this song. So when this song came out, I'm a huge Beatles and Paul McCartney fan, so I was fascinated by this song. This was the first single, so it kind of drew attention to the album for me, but a lot of people weren't happy with this as the first single. They thought this didn't bode well for the album. I liked the song when it came out. And the more I listen to it now, the less I like it. This is my <laughs> seventh favorite song on the album. <laughs> it's three from the bottom. Oh, my gosh. I have some real problems with a serial monogamist having a uh, girl battle with Michael Jackson. You know it's really Michael and Paul because they address that later in the song. Yes, they're not playing characters. They're not playing characters. So this, to me, is like Michael Jackson's making a play for Linda is in my head. Oh now, my I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but has anybody seen the music video for this? No. Okay, so the music video for this is very bizarre. It is simply Michael Jackson at Paul McCartney's farm. So it's McCartney's family, and they're near a horse paddock for most of it, and there's Michael Jackson. And the only girl of age in there for Michael Jackson to be claiming is Linda. Oh, wow. It underscored my weird vibe on this when I listened to it as an adult recently. And then the other thing that just drives a stake through my heart is the use of the word doggone. These are two of the greatest songwriters in the history of music. And to say the doggone girl is mine is just weird to me. It is weird. So a song that I really liked when it came out, I don't like it so much anymore. I really don't. I listened to the other two duets. I think Say, Say, Say on McCartney's Pipes of Peace album is the best one they did together. And I think this is probably my least favorite of the three. Again, I think in the three slot, I know what the idea was. Michael Jackson was not the huge thing we think of now as an artist. And this was a way to draw attention to him as an artist, as a solo artist in particular. So I understand the marketing logic of a Paul McCartney duet. You know, in retrospect, he's a huge megastar and that's not necessary. Well, maybe it was to jumpstart that, but this gives me bad vibes now. I'm ambivalent more than anything. I shouldn't say I hate the song. I don't really hate it. But yeah, this one moved way down on this listening of the album. It's definitely bad vibes. That's 100% right. And to me, this would be absolutely a nothing song if not for the fact that Paul McCartney's on it. I mean, that sets it apart just because it's interesting and weird to have these two guys singing together. And I think they're little spoken exchange towards the end is is like funny in a weird way like yeah. it's just like what are they doing like why are they having this little pardon my french dick measuring contest over this woman <laughs> and then the whole time i was just wondering like has anyone asked the woman what she wants yeah, that like, was mom's thought. these two guys are like oh she's told her i'm the one oh she, she's told me i'm the one it's like has she? Like, I, w I wanted to know the woman's perspective in all this. <laughs> it's very weird, but it is fun to listen to because it is fun. It was very novel when it came on, and I heard Paul McCartney's voice. 
instantly recognized that it was Paul McCartney. And I was like, wait a minute, what is he doing here? What is he doing here? And can I mention that he sounds really good on this song? He does like, sound I'm good. Like I used to like recent albums where he's a little more raspy and really struggling to hit some of those notes. He sounds really good on this he song. He does. He sounds like the calm, cool, and collected one, whereas Michael Jackson sounds like the desperate one on this song, in my opinion. Well, that's because Paul's in a relationship with the woman right. they're fighting over, right? <laughs> yeah. He, were they married? Woman. Yeah, that doggone... <laughs> Oh, yeah, girl, not woman. God forbid we call them women. They're girls, right? Just a bizarre song. So I'm going to be a little contrarian here. This song never appealed to me whatsoever. And I think part of the issue that I had with it was I was very disappointed in Paul's career after the Beatles broke up. I, I was never impressed with most of the things that he did. And I look at it as Paul McCartney wanted to get some more popular pop music behind him and get exposed to that crowd. And it was Michael Jackson doing Paul McCartney a favor as opposed to Paul McCartney doing Michael Jackson a favor and bringing Michael Jackson some attention. So that's just my viewpoint. I think Michael Jackson was a little bit more on the rise at the time. And Paul McCartney was not very, I, I think his wings and, and his solo stuff was not nearly as good as his work when he was working with John Lennon. And so I think this was more to try to invigorate his, I don't want to say floundering because there were still plenty of people who were huge McCartney fans, but I just, I never was one of them. And I loved the Beatles, was never attracted. I never bought a single Paul McCartney solo album or Wings album. I did buy a couple of John Lennon albums. I enjoyed um, George Harrison's work more, but I, I think it was more the opposite of what your take on it was, Barry, that he was bringing Michael Jackson into the forefront, and I think it was the other way around. There was certainly a sense that McCartney was trying to do some of that. He had done stuff with Stevie Wonder on the mm. Tug of War album, which preceded uh, the Michael Jackson stuff's on Pipes of Peace. I think that was a marketing strategy for McCartney in the 80s, and I don't disagree with that. I think Paul McCartney's had one really solid album per decade. He writes a ton of material. He would have been better served by having fewer albums and really boiling it down. I think the guy just likes to write music. But for every tug of war, there's an album like Press to Play. You know, even Pipes of Peace is nowhere near as strong as Tug of War. You get into the 90s and, you know, he had the thing with that he did with um, Elvis Costello, Flowers in the Dirt. And then you kind of drag through another decade waiting for another one that's as strong. So, yes, I agree with that. I don't disagree with that at all, Todd. But, yeah, I think it was a symbiotic relationship. I don't I don't disagree with that. You brought up the dog on and it made me think that when we discussed the wings album band on the run i was not impressed with the lyricism on that album and i don't think you could argue that this album is a particularly lyrics strong album so it's not the strongest two lyricists in the world coming together to write a song so i don't know why you would expect anything um better really i don't know i just think you could find a word <laughs> a two-syllable word to fit in there to better than doggone well, maybe they meant to write goddamn and then everyone was like no you can't put that on the radio right you couldn't do that doggone it's got to be doggone walter you have any thoughts on that song first time <laughs> sitting in uh but I think you guys are all spot on. I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. Doggone. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but when you take it back to that time frame, it was touchy. That probably wasn't, maybe it was goddamn girl. 
The goddamn girl is mine. <laughs> but why not say one syllable woman instead of two syllable girl? Just listen, you won't point. hear any argument from me about that. <laughs> I'm in favor of calling adult women women. Why is it a negative connotation use of a term? Why why, why couldn't it have been more of a positive that lovely woman or you know something more positive towards her than doggone girl exactly that precious girl is mine not a misogynistic connotation but a very positive you're fighting over this woman right theoretically because it's about possessing i'm sorry they're not fighting her because as we know michael jackson's a lover not a fighter i did find that line very funny <laughs> you know paul i'm a lover not a fighter <laughs> <laughs> How's my Michael Jackson impression? It's pretty good. Thank you. Almost as good as my Paul this morning when I was singing in the bathroom. <laughs> I think on our heavy rotation of beers and songs, we have to rate this one already. Indeed. Now, the interesting thing here is this is the one that Walter is also drinking. I know. Oh, maybe he uh -huh. can rate his own beer. we got to pin him down and make him rate his own beer. Oh, that's funny. He thinks rating him in front of him is bad. Where do we make him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I tend to avoid true Hefeweizens because... I don't particularly enjoy that banana clove flavor combination, but this is actually really nice. Yeah, I can't figure out what makes it different. I mean, Walter, you said the balance of the yeast is 50-50 banana clove. So maybe I've just been having unbalanced Hefeweizens my whole life. But for a Hefeweizen, which is a style I normally would avoid, I really, really enjoy this. And I'm going to give it a 4.0. Wow. Ooh. So Walter's new. Oh, yes. So mm -hmm. we've been rating these things on Untad forever, but we started with different baselines. So my baseline is three and a half means I would drink it again. Three, seven, five is I liked it. Four is I liked it a lot, et cetera. Abigail starts with a three yeah. as I would drink it again. Mm -hmm. So when she goes to a four, that's a bigger leap than when I go to a four just because her base is different. Got it. But we don't want to go back and retcon that because all our previous ratings, like we're basing it on something we've done for, I've been doing it for eight years. It's like the one bite pizza scale. The one bite pizza scale. I've never heard yeah. of this. Uh, what? I've never heard of this. Dave Portnoy, he goes out and uh, he rates all the pizzas and he's got a certain pizza scale as well. Oh, oh I got and, you. And it's very similar how you guys are saying. A very cool yeah i'm gonna look that up now yeah not that i need to be rating anything else i got no. music i got beer i got enough going on we have too much data in our lives so i am also going to give this a four nice mm -hmm. which is probably i have to go back and look but it's probably one of the first if not one of the few hefweizens that i've given a four to but i'm doing it for the same reason you mm -hmm. are the flavors are prominent and balanced so again going back to i don't smell well and i'm looking for flavors sure. that are a little more intense just because i'm basically doing it all on taste and i really like the taste of this hefweizen so yeah i'm giving that a four also we've matched so far this beer is like i don't know it's that last quarter of your glass and you give it the big swirl mm. and it just leaves you wanting another pint it's that that full I don't want to say slick, but a full mouthfeel. Yeah. Just leaves your tongue wanting more. Well, and you have an empty glass. So yeah. That's, that's going to play out a here big, in a minute. tall glass, too. I'm going to have to go get another one. Yeah. I was going to say, it's refreshing. And I don't find banana nor clove to be particularly refreshing flavors. I so the fact that. Yeah. that this beer was so refreshing, given the prominent banana and clove flavors, and I think it did have to do with the carbonation because it's just floaty and fruity and nice. Yeah. All right. What are we moving on to next? This is the the buxom blonde ale speaking of farrah fawcett well, i wouldn't call her buxom it, no in that picture not quite <laughs> Todd's already texting the poster to abigail <laughs> yeah. in the background um so this is 5.6 percent abv do blondes have more fun 
Who knows? But this golden blonde ale has a medium body and a smooth malty finish. 2021 bronze medal winner at the U.S. Beer Open competition. Awesome. Cheers. 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 Smells really good. I don't know anything about that. I can't figure out what it smells like, though. Me either. (laughs) It just smells like a... A nice beer. It smells different from how it tastes, though. I, I can't quite figure it well, out. Well, that's the problem. That's why I migrate towards the beers with the stronger, bolder flavors, right? This one's nice because it's clearly a beery beer, but it's not super hoppy. It's quite malty, but not super sweet. So, again, a very well-balanced flavor palette there. We, we are having the same tasting experience. <laughs> now, the smelling experience, I have to defer to your nose. By the way, I noticed that Walter got out of rating the last beer, but that's okay. That's okay. okay. I'm okay with that. It's his okay. own creation. Yeah, it feels it's all hard. my children. It's, it's Yeah, tough. you can't choose a favorite child, Mm-mm. right, Dad? That's true. You can't choose a favorite child. Can I lean heavily on one versus the other? No. Do you do a <laughs> podcast with the other one? Oh, <laughs> Well, while we're enjoying that beer, I'm going to move on to track number four. Walter's going to skip the clip to refill his glass, which is a good choice. So the next track is the title track of the album, and that's the song Thriller. That was Thriller. Todd, I'm going to go to you first this time. You know, I never thought of it before, but listening to it today in light of the conversations we had earlier about Michael Jackson, what if he's describing what it's like to spend an evening with him at uh, Neverland Ranch? Whoa. <laughs> kind of dark, <laughs> isn't it? dark. That's awfully dark, that yeah. It is dark. That's an interesting take, though, in the sense that, first of all, this is my favorite song on the album. It's my second favorite. This was the seventh single. This was the last song that they introduced as a single. That is so shocking. They didn't want to do it because it was perceived as a novelty song. It ended up going to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. And I've always looked at it at face value as just a kind of a Halloween horror track. But when you watch the video... There's this whole thing where he becomes the monster chasing after the woman. So I didn't look at it like you were referring to the issues surrounding children, Todd. I was just looking at it as a dark guy chasing after a woman. I am the thriller. There's a dark tone to it if you take it as a relationship song. 
And there's a little of that that you get from the video that makes you go down that path if you watch the video, right? He's dating this woman. They're at a film. They see a horror movie. And then when they're walking home, a bunch of zombies come out after him. And then he becomes the zombie. So there's a weird kind of connotation to that as far as a boyfriend or a lover being a threat. Yeah. So that was my dark take on it. I didn't go all the way to where you went with it. But I thought there was a darker undertone to it. But at face value, as kind of a novelty Halloween song where you're just talking about all these creatures of the night coming after you, I think it's a delight. So it's my favorite song on the album. Yeah, it's my second favorite. And I've always liked this song in sort of the same way as like the ooky spooky Halloween. And so I totally understand why they wouldn't want to release it. I mean, it basically is a novelty song, in all honesty. And it really doesn't fit in with the rest of the album. But I don't mind that. I really enjoy it. I love all the sound effects in here that you mentioned earlier. I love the narrator at the end with his... Do you know? Do you have any information on that guy? Like, who is he? Or? What? Come on, Abigail. That's Vincent Price. He's a famous 50s and 60s horror icon. <laughs> I don't... I'm not familiar. Yeah, he was the Michael Jackson of horror films, if you will. He was pretty much ubiquitous in multiple horror films and he just had that voice and that look and he was a perfect character for so many different horror films and one that comes to mind that scared the living daylights out of me when I was about oh I don't know five or six years old I remember grandma and granddad went out one night and left uncle Dean and myself and I'm not even sure your mother was born yet no she wasn't probably born yet no left us with a babysitter and she let us watch House on Haunted Hill, and Vincent Price was in there. And I've seen it since, and the special effects are very poorly done, and they are so primitive. But for a five- or six-year-old, it was crazy scary. And ever since that, I remembered Vincent Price as this ghoulish guy, and this was a perfect song for him in the video to be in. It was perfect. He was in The Fly, Abigail is one you might remember, and one of his later films, he's in Edward Scissorhands. Tim Burton brought him in. He plays the creator of Edward Scissorhands that lives Mm. up on the hill, and he's real old at that point. I mean, he died in the 90s, I think, and this would have been like 87 or something that he was in Edward Scissorhands. Oh, no, it was later than that. It was in the early 90s. The story I heard about that was that they wrote that thing up, and they hired Vincent Price to do it, and they offered him either the fee or he could have a piece of the action on the album. He took the fee. $25,000 is the number I remember. Not smart. Yeah, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. You got to go back and go, well, I probably should have taken the points on that one. But yeah, it, he does a great job on that. And it's so funny because there's a lot of, not hip hop vernacular, but there's some lines in there like he uses the word y'alls, Y-A-L-L apostrophe S at one point. The words that they chose to put in there are such a mismatch for him, but he does such a great job on it. And he did it in two takes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like he probably thinks it's a great day. I'm going to read this thing twice and they're going to hand me a check for $25,000. And then, you know, the rest is history. But that's yeah, so funny. really, really like that. I think that's why I pushed this one up to the top. I think, you know, the interesting thing is you say this is just a, a release for Halloween. It was released after Halloween. It was November 5th. 83. And so it was actually after Halloween, but it would have been a great Halloween song, you know, to play at a Halloween party. It would have been perfect, which I'm sure people did. It's such a great video too. By the way, directed by John Carpenter. Oh, 
wow. Who's a kind of horror suspense director, did The Thing. I love The Thing. Escape from New York, I think, was one of his. He did quite a few of these kind of Hitchcockian suspense things in the late 70s. So big time director, 13 minute clip, like I mentioned before. Yeah. And so to air it on MTV was quite an achievement to take up that much time every time. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I love that the Vincent Price part. I think it's really, really cool. And you were talking about the darkness and his relationship that you got from the music video, but it's a little bit in the lyrics too. I mean, he's talking about how he's going to thrill this woman, like the spooky elements around them. And like, you can take that to mean he's going to thrill her sexually, but you could also take it to mean I'm going to frighten you. (laughs) I'm going to produce a fear reaction. I'm going to stalk you. Right, right. It's interesting that he sort of admits to that. With no prompting, he's like, I'm going to thrill you like these ooky spooky monsters. Well, just so we're clear, he did not write this song. This was written by somebody else. Oh, okay. Uh, Somebody named Rod Temperton wrote this song. And it didn't start out as being called Thriller. The idea was similar and it had a different title. And then they kind of fell on to the Thriller concept. But this was not penned by Michael Jackson. So he technically wasn't admitting to anything on his own. The only other thing I will say is this ends side one. And what a perfect way to do it on the Vincent Price narration. And then just as he laughs, you hear a door close as if I'm ending the song, but I'm also ending side one, which is why I think the placement of this as the title track still works in this slot because there is a sense of closure as you got to get up and flip the album. Which we will do now. Well, I'm going to flip the song and I do have to get up. (laughs) Today, I have to get up and flip every song. So we're going to move on now to track five. We're turning the album over and we're going to go with one of the more iconic songs on the album that's track five beat it And yes, I cut that off just before the iconic Eddie Van Halen guitar riff. My apologies, but we played that before. I'm sorry, we didn't. The Dorks on Forks team played it when we did the Weird Al album. Well, I was going to say, because I knew it was Eddie Van Halen because of our sister podcasters. So this was the third single. It was released in February of 1983. This was the first of the two number one Billboard Hot 100 hits. So again, all these songs tracked to be in the top 10. This was one of the two number ones. This is right in the middle of the pack for me. This one comes in at number five. And I think the main reason is... The background singers really take me out of the song. They're like, ooh. It's supposed to be this tough, beat it, beat it, don't make me... And then it's like, oh. And that bugs me. (laughs) Sorry, it really does. What an obscure... Well, you know, you're ranking songs. You're like, I'm going to move this one down a little bit because that didn't hold up for me after all these years. Uh But, you know, it's an iconic song with an iconic guitar solo. It's a really good song. But Beat It comes in at number five for me on this album. 
This is my favorite song. Wow. Yeah, I knew it. Obviously, we had a Guitar Hero game that had this on it. So I got to play that Eddie Van Halen guitar solo on a video game. <laughs> I don't think that counts. That's, but we'll... not, that's not the reason it's my favorite. But I do, I love the guitar in this song. It's great. The riff that opens the song and continues throughout it, the dur that to me is extremely iconic, recognizable anywhere. I think it's a really fun song. His voice is a little, verging on a little high for me in this one. It does sound like he's straining a little bit. But I didn't notice, like the, I didn't bump on the background singers at all in this one. They didn't bother me or I didn't even really notice that there was anything there to have an opinion about, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's why I picked the clip that I picked because it's about as loud as it is in anywhere in the song mm. in that second verse, the one that I played. And it's just sort of like these tough guys and officers like, ooh, and it just didn't work for me. But I, but I kind of like that. It's kind of like the Jets and the Sharks in a yeah, West Side yeah, Story. Yeah, it's like a West Side Story thing. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I know. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this song was so popular because of two things. One you touched on already, the guitar, which is outstanding. And this is coming from someone who just loves good electric guitar. I could listen to it 24-7. So I think one is the guitar. But I just think the overall energy of this song is so high. It just really pounds it out there. And like I said, your Aunt Kathy uh, found at Club Med that everybody was line dancing to this song in the early 80s and at Club Meds. And so it was crazy. It's amazing the things that bring us to music, right? So line dancing at Club Med to beat it. I can't envision what the dance would be to that. I feel like I have to Google line dance to beat it. The other point about that, Todd, with the guitar is that this was considered the rocker on the album. This was new for him. This is the mm. first Michael Jackson rock song ever. And it's because of the guitar. Wow. So that's why it's a standout on the album, right? As a rock and roll song on this album. And that's all the energy from Eddie Van Halen, mm -hmm. right? So to me, it's, you know, when you're trying to rank the songs in order, sometimes it's an obscure thing that makes me move something up or down. And in this case, it was just with all the energy from the guitar to have a couple of guys come in and go, oh, just, I don't know. <laughs> it just was like, my thing. Every song on this album has a little bit of the like. But they don't oh. have Eddie Van Halen. It's a, it's a too, mismatch. It's a mismatch. Yeah. Thank you. That's just classic Michael Jackson, though. That, ooh, that's just, yeah. that's, you know, where it shows up in other places all throughout his career. Right. Yeah, but in this case, it's background singers mimicking it. Like, there's other people in his gang. <laughs> and I'm You're like, like creating a whole lore of this. Well, song. when you watch the music video, am I wrong? He's part of a gang, much like you just brought up the uh, Jets, and the, Jets and the Sharks. And so, you know, it's a music video about tough guys, and they don't look all that tough. <laughs> and then on top of that, they don't sound all that tough. <laughs> and so, you know, as I'm putting it all together, I'm like, ah, eh, beat it. It might be an iconic song, but I just, other things on the album work better. So for interesting. Me. That's why I'm here. This is what we do create but, controversy. But that video was so iconic when it came out. You watched it every time it came on the screen. Part of the reason why that and I think Billie Jean did become number mm -hmm. one songs were the fact that they had two of the most iconic videos to this day, right? And most people would say that Thriller is like the best video of all time. So part of it is the fact that he embraced... Remember, MTV so not that old mm -hmm. when he comes on and he really embraced that as an art form. They were well done, well produced, well directed. They sunk the money into it, and it shows on the screen. And it was one of Weird Al's best spinoffs for yes. Eat It. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're on track five, and he's had some amazing gets 
for like collaborators on this album oh, already. Yeah. Like crazy. I think that's Quincy Jones, right, Todd? Quincy Jones has the big Rolodex that's pulling in these kinds of favors from guys like Vincent Price and oh, yeah. and Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, if you look at his discography, I'm sure it lists all kinds of genres of music and all generations. You know, he was in the business for a long time, probably 50 something years. And so he... All it would take is, hey, let me get somebody in here. I, I know just the person for this. Or it probably took one phone call. And, you know, when you're producing an album that sells 70 or 80 million copies sold, paying Vincent Price 25 grand, if that's what it was, like you referred to earlier, you know, that's like nothing. And so he's able to bring in big names all the time, I'm sure. Well, he produced We Are the World, right? Yes. Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones produced that track and got those artists together yeah, yeah, two yeah. years after this. And yeah, and he's still going. Shall we move on to track six? No, we have to rate Do our we? beer after every odd song. I'm so confused today, Todd. I don't know where to go. <laughs> he's on vacation I mode. I didn't drink this one fast enough. I know. <laughs> All right. You want to go first? I will go first. So again, Blonde is another category where... Because of the nature of the beer, it's not a lot of strong flavors. Not a category I migrate to, right? We talk about that a lot. It's a very solid Blondale. I'm going to give it a 375. This is hoppier and maltier than most of the Blondales I've had. It might be why I like it a, yeah. a touch more. It's, I mean, it's more flavorful, certainly. I've never drank a Blondale, uh, maybe one that I said, I wouldn't drink that one again. So, like, I drink Blondales and I like Blondales. This one's a cut above that. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 3.5. Um, I agree with everything you said. Flavorful, easy to drink. It's a solid blonde. It has a lovely degree of maltiness that I don't find in many other blondes. I, I find most blondes to be kind of like light on flavor. To me, they're like, oh, this is what you drink when you want something easy to drink, right? So they don't need to have a lot of flavor. Right. But this one had a lot of flavor. So agreed, it is a cut above other blondes. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. Yeah, that's a crushable beer with some, a crushable some beer. flavor. All right. Now, now okay. on to the things for dad. Okay, so yes, we have two sours coming up and I'm extremely excited for these. This first one is called Queen Sour. She's an 8.6% ABV. What? Unexpectedly high. Our queen packs a puckering punch. She's fruited with raspberry and blueberry puree. Then we add a subtle addition of vanilla to round out the puckering finish of this big bad babe. <laughs> <laughs> Not a flavorless blonde. No. Cheers. No, cheers. <laughs> Thanks again, Walter. Cheers, Beautiful color, it's too. Gorgeous. Yeah. Very uh, hazy. A watermelon color, too. It is exactly right? a watermelon color. Oh and my God. Delicious. Oh my God. It's really sour. Now we're cooking. Yeah, it is sour. Yeah, puckering punch. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I have this thing I use as a gauge, Walter. I'll call something tart if there's a balance of sweet and sour to it. Okay. And if I don't get a lot of sweet, I'll lean toward calling it sour. So this one I would as a flavor profile, I would mm -hmm. say sour versus okay. tart. I really like it. Yeah. And I'm a red fruit guy, so I like the dark red fruits. Uh, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, all sure, that stuff. Sure. So this is right in my wheelhouse. I feel like we should have shipped Todd some beer. Mm. I know. I feel bad. <laughs> we got... Todd doing a music review in Indiana. We got Walter the Brewer here <laughs> drinking his beer for him. It's crazy today. That works out, though. That works. This is why we say we have no format. <laughs> so, weirdly enough, Dad, this is almost like, not that it has the texture, but maybe it's the vanilla or maybe there's a creaminess to it, but it reminds me of that smoothie sour we had at Invasive Species. Yeah, I don't think it's that thick. Flavor-wise, right. I think you're right. I guess what I'm trying to say is it tastes like a smoothie. 
So maybe it is the vanilla that I'm picking up on. I think the vanilla is really the glue. It pulls the fruits together, lets them lay on that sour body. I feel like a lot of beers that have vanilla in it have a sweetness to it, and I don't really get much sweetness from this, which... I don't mind at all that there's no sweetness to it, but it's interesting to have that vanilla without the sweetness. And the other thing about the vanilla is it's a late entry, you know, those bold sour flavors pop up. And then when that's waning is when you get the Mm -hmm. vanilla. So there's a layering to it too. That's really interesting. It's very nice. It's just a tiny bit of vanilla too, because we did overdo it with vanilla one time and it did produce not actual sweetness, but a perceived sweetness. Right, because... Vanilla is associated with desserts and sweet things. So I totally understand that effect. You know, Walter, Abigail's always looking to replace me on the oh podcast. So <laughs> this always happens. I always get ganged up on and today. She's got and the she's going to move down here soon. So, that's you know, right. yeah, that's, exactly. right. that's right. <laughs> no, but this is nice. I, I like a beer that takes you on a journey through a sip. Right. <laughs> All right. I'm going to move on now to track number six. Track number six is the other number one Billboard Hot 100 single on the album. It's the second single released in October of 1982, also ahead of the album. Two singles released before the album even dropped. And that's the song, Billie Jean. your background ooh again all right abigail why don't you start off this time this is my third favorite song on the album good call i knew it prior to hearing this album of course as i mentioned earlier i like this one because there is a distinct story to it i mean the lyrics are repetitive so we don't get much of the story but you read the lyrics and you know exactly what's going on this guy's embroiled in an accusation of paternity (laughs) and i read the lyrics as It's actually true because when he says that she shows him the picture of the kid and the kid has his eyes, he goes, oh no, like he's realizing that she's actually right. Like this is his kid. So I read this as a confession and I hadn't ever really picked up on that until I read the lyrics. But yeah, I mean, this is just a fun song. I love the that synth part. We talked about synth always feeling sort of spooky sounding. And when I saw that this was on the album with Thriller, because again, I knew this song, but I didn't know that it was on this album. When I saw that it was on this album with Thriller, like that's a thread in my head, right? Because this is kind of a spooky, it has some spooky synth in it. And then the story, if you're in that situation, which I've never been in that situation, but I imagine it would be a little terrifying. So yeah, it makes sense to me on this album because of those threads. So yeah, it's my third favorite. It's my second favorite. Nice. He claims 
that this was more based on letters from fans and things that happened to his brothers when they were members of the Jackson 5, that this is not a personal story, that one of his brothers went through this. Whether that's true or not, I don't know the answer to that, but clearly it's the most direct storytelling on here. Yeah. It's great dance beat. I call this one another dance track. It plays more like the first two tracks on the album. A great driving rhythm through the whole song that really drives the song. So the repetitiveness of the lyrics, you know, again, designed for a dance floor, not really relevant that you keep retelling the same stories over and over and again. So I really, really like this song. You know, he's doing the same thing that you stuff in this one. (laughs) But in here, I don't have a beef with it because that's Michael Jackson doing a performance. Whereas in the previous song, it seemed out of character for the story that he was telling. Yeah. And that's why this one's way up on the list for me and the other one, not so much. Sure. And I should be clear, when I said he's confessing, I should have said the character in the song is confessing. Yeah, but most people always took it that it was him. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, and then he always was like, no, 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 it's about other people. It's about my brother. Right. Maybe, maybe not, right? (laughs) We'll we'll leave that to history to decide, right? Because I don't know how that all resolved. If it was somebody who really accused him, you'd think it'd be more of a part of the story or... Well, and this would be an odd PR response to that kind of situation. To just, like, release a diss track, like, (laughs) I did not have sexual relations with Billie Jean. (laughs) That kid is not a boy, right? It's that kid. The kid. Keeps it so vague. The kid. kid is. <laughs> it's not my son. Yeah, another weird choice of a word. Yeah. Right? The kid the is kid not my son. Is not the boy my is son. not my son. He must know it's a boy. Why say kid? Right, boy. exactly. He's distancing himself yeah. from the kid. Intriguing. But if an extremely popular artist was accused of fathering a kid with a rando, like, I feel like today there would be a much different PR response than releasing Billie Jean, you know? You know, Kid with the Rando is the title of my upcoming album. <laughs> it better not be. <laughs> Do just, I have a half-sibling? I'm just <laughs> telling, I'm telling stories about nuts with other people. Right, right, right. Letters your brother, your brother. That's my, about my brother. So this came out before Jerry Springer, right? Because then you just yeah. get both oh of them on Jerry gosh. Springer and get the paternity yeah. test going. That's a good Michael point. Michael Jackson, you are not the, <laughs> the father, father. The of kid Billie Jean's kid. Yeah, the kid is not your son. <laughs> that's what it says in the little Chiron at the bottom. That's really funny. We're going to go to our Indiana correspondent now. Todd, what's happening out there in Fort Wayne? It's uh, actually a really uh, beautiful day here, if you want to know the weather. It got up this morning, it was 58 degrees, and it's only going to get up to 75 today. So I am extremely jealous. <laughs> oh, it was so crisp. I took a, a three-month walk this morning and had to have a little jacket on and it was crisp it really was so enjoying the day well now you're just rubbing it in i i was really looking for a music review <laughs> um, I, I take a much more simplistic view of this song i never really tried to digest all of the intricacies of the the lyrics i just took it for what it seemed to be superficially and just enjoyed the music i thought the music was really good in this song You're right. Musically, it's a great song. You don't have to pay any attention to the lyrics. You know, we had that conversation a lot about lyrics agnosticism. Yeah. This was a tough one for me, Todd, because as you know, if Abigail gives me a new album, I'm unfamiliar with it. I listen to it and I just mark off whether the song hits me the right way or not. I couldn't do that with this album. I'm too familiar with the song. So it was hard for me to listen to it with a fresh set of eyes and, and how would something grab me? But I really think in the end, the way I ranked them is really how the songs grab me overall. Right. And I think that's why this one's so high on the list for me, because it, just to put it in and listen to it, fabulous song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lyrics are dark when you dive in there, but I'm not sure when I listened to it or watched that video on MTV in 1983, I had any awareness of what this song was about. I really don't. The video doesn't really address it. 
it's him dancing on a cool lighted set and you don't really have any sense that it's got anything no to do with this. There's no babies. Mm. There's no kids. There's no sons. There's no Billy Jean. There's nobody else in it. It's just him. The light up sidewalk was really cool as well. Yes. Do you remember that in the video? Yes. And I think this is the song that uh, during an awards show on TV, Michael Jackson moonwalked for the first time during that performance. I think oh, you're right. Wow. I think it was the Grammys. And that performance on the Grammys extended the shelf life of the yeah. album as well. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But, uh, you know, it, it's funny you talk about how does a song grab you? I'm not much of a reader. I, I never was a reader. I think I had a significant reading disability and that I had to really concentrate on what I was reading and maybe read it two or three times. So it made it very challenging to go through college and medical school and study for boards and all that stuff. But I also found when I listen to music, I'm listening to the music. I don't focus on the lyrics. I, I'm not a, a word person per se, even though my father, Abigail's grandfather, was a professional journalist and editor. And he kind of ingrained in my brain the necessity of good grammar and syntax and all of those things that's not my my strong point i'm not a writer I'm, I'm much more of an editor because i can see what's there and formulate it in my own mind so i listen to the music i don't listen as much to the lyrics i think your mom's the same way isn't she abigail does she listen more to the music than the, the lyrics i think if i'm not mistaken yeah and i probably wouldn't even pay as much attention to the lyrics as i do if not for my dad and this project it has sort of forced me to be more thoughtful about the words and the meanings and the stories because hey it's one more thing to talk about when we're on mic and as you know we love to hear ourselves talk and two <laughs> I'm not going to be able to hold my own if he's coming at me with some, you know, rhetorical analysis of a song. And I have to be like, well, I like the drums, you know, like <laughs> I have to be able to match him a little bit. So <laughs> I'll give it a five for danceability. Yeah, exactly. I can bop to this one. But but what does it mean? And I came at it from a lot of literature studied yeah, literature in did. high school and college. <laughs> and it was always about read this thing and let's have a long, in-depth discussion. You're constantly looking at stuff and trying to one-up the person who made a comment before or after you, right? Trying to show some knowledge of whatever it is. You're trying to look at a take on it because you know everybody else is going to have a take on it and what's your interesting take on it. So I know I overdo that on the podcast. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. But the people who listen, that sometimes that's what they come to listen to. They'll just go, I never thought of that with the lyrics or whatever. This so. is us tooting our own horn. This is like Walter over here raiding his own beers on yeah, Untapped. Well, that's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> we do great work on this podcast. <laughs> no, I didn't say we did great work. I just said we did different work. As long as you're not writing your own comments. To that's right. No, we don't do that. We're not that nuts. No, not yet anyway. <laughs> we thought about it. No, okay. All right, I'm going to move on to track seven. It's the fifth single from the album. It released in July of 1993. It was number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. And that's human nature.
All right, I'm going to go first on this one. This is my third favorite song on the album. I really, really like this song. It's a nice, simple story. Guy in New York meets a girl, whatever. Simple. It's a slower tempo. I'm not drawn to a lot of slower tempo songs, as we know. We've had that conversation a lot. But I think this is really a beautifully orchestrated song. A lot of digital elements, again, going back to what the early 80s sounded like. It's not as dance heavy as some of the other ones. And I kind of appreciate that. So, yeah, I like this one a lot. I made it number three. This is my eighth favorite song (laughs) (laughs) on the album. (laughs) And it's funny, Dad, because when you played the intro, I was like, why did I make this my eighth favorite? Like, this intro is so fun. And then we got to him singing and the breathiness of his voice, it just ekes me out. I can't handle it. I can't tolerate it. And probably that is because of my history with Michael Jackson in that I have no history with his music and I only know the sexual scandal. It's the first thing I ever knew about Michael Jackson. But I didn't like him trying to sound sexy in this song. It really turned me off. So this is my eighth favorite song. Controversy ensues. Todd, <laughs> settle it for us. Yeah, I, I think I don't know all of your musical tastes, Abigail, but I would suspect that you're not drawn to jazz because I think this has a little bit of a jazz influence in it. The way he's singing is almost trying to be in that jazzy rhythm and, and all of that. And it, maybe that's why you don't like it. I think it's a great song. I don't know that it's perfect for this album, maybe, but it's. I think it's a really good song. And it's got that jazzy, and that's probably a lot of Quincy Jones in it, because that's kind of how Quincy Jones got started was in that era. He started in, in music in the 50s, early 50s. And so he had a very early um, experience with jazz, and I think that maybe he had some influence when he produced this song on that. I think you're right, Todd. I think this is more of the ballady songs on this album. I think this is the strongest one. And I think it's more, Abigail saying breathy and sexy, it's more like a crooner to me, like an old school crooner. So when you have some history of hearing some of those older guys sing in that style, this one doesn't stand out. You know, you say crooner, he worked with Frank Sinatra. You know, there was no greater crooner in the world at the time. And Quincy Jones was working with Frank Sinatra, so he probably brought some of that influence as well. So, yeah. I think when I think of a crooner, I am also thinking of Frank Sinatra. So I'm thinking of like a deep, resonant voice, you know, sung in the chest, like a real full voice. And this is not any of that. It's not full. It's not deep. It's not resonant. It's why? Wispy. (laughs) Wispy. (laughs) Wispy is the right word. I feel like we have a 2-2 tie here. And I don't care for it i simply don't care for it but that entry i really loved the entry you played with the really rapid synth i thought that was yeah yeah it's a great intro yeah. and then he's like eh, eh, and i just don't i don't want it i don't want it how do you really feel i don't, I don't want know, it i'm not clear <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you 100 percent. you said everything i was thinking you know, it had the classic synthesizer uh, 80s feel. I uh-huh. mean, that was that's what, what was happening. But that wispy just, oh, like I'm crying about it. Oh. But that's who he is. But he's also beat it. He's a tough guy. <laughs> well, going back to my complaint with beat it. In the song, okay, so here you go. In the song Beat It, where everybody's supposed to be tough, he's doing this. And it doesn't work for me. And in a simple, jazzy, vocal crooner performance, he does this and it works for me. Okay. Did I defend myself well? You can have any opinion you want. You don't need to defend anything. Well, 
Then we have no podcast. Yeah, that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole exercise here is to defend your opinion. I've already taken my last sip, what? so we need to rate, rate this right. while I still have the flavor. <laughs> Are you going first? While I oh sure, yeah, I can go first. Um, I thought it was delicious. Obviously, I'm going to give it a three point seven five. Really, really delightful. I am still kind of fascinated by the vanilla, but not sweet dichotomy. That's a really cool use of vanilla in something so sour. It really was puckering my mouth at first. I think I've sort of gotten used to it. Hasn't puckered me as much at the end, but I really enjoyed that first sip where I was like, ooh, mama, like, woo, there, that is a sour beer because I love my beer sour. Well, so. that may have been coming off the blonde too, the that's, blonde ale, yes, right? The first fair. sip. So obviously now that we've been using the same beer here for a while, I, uh, I'm going to give this a four for essentially all the same reasons you said. I love the complexity of it. And I don't have any problem with there's not a lot of sweetness. I'm okay with it. Oh, no. I no. like sour beers. That was However, not a they complaint. Come at me, so <laughs> give it a four for me, please. Yes, sir. Right. I have written good. that down. That takes us to the last one. What do we have for our final entry today? This is Sitting in Limbo Sour. This is a Berliner Weiss, 5.3% ABV. Light-bodied kettle sour packing a sessionable 5.3 ABV. Soured using lactobacillus plantarum for two days, resulting in a 33 Three pH that gives puckering pleasure. We have a very acidic beer. Three point three is pH is three very low. That's lower than that's, tomato juice. That's and, yeah. very low. Yeah, this is really going to be your more of your that traditional, right? So this is going back to what the Bologna Vice style originally started with. So they would take this style and then add syrups to sweeten it up. And it would also change the color to green or uh, red, different colors with the syrup they would add. Or you drank it straight. This is also very good. Mm. Yeah. I feel like most of the sours I have are fruited. And this is clearly not fruited at all. And it's so good. But what's interesting about that is it's both sour and refreshing at the same time. It is. It's interesting, too, because it hits you really hard. And then it leaves the palate like, like it's gone. Vaporized. Yeah, it's like an intermezzo beer. It's so interesting. He used a music term to describe intermezzo. his beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whoa, next level. Another full circle. So the interesting thing about this beer is we now keep this as our base for, you know, brand extensions. So we, we do have a number of different carbonated juices that we will add to these blackberry, grapefruit, uh, clementine. And we call this our mashup series. So you can get it with any of those split. Almost a 50-50. You make those carbonated juices here in-house? No, no, we don't. It's a, it's like that Izzy, Izzy, brand. Izzy brand. Oh, okay. Really good. Cool. Yeah, they're solid stuff. And uh, then we'll also do in the fall, we'll add it with some uh, cider, apple cider. Not Ooh, hard cider, just apple good. cider. And then like a little rim. It's uh, it's a crowd favorite. Yeah, so it's a super versatile beer, but awesome. it's great by itself to have a nice... Yes. If you're sitting having those IPAs that are big, heavy, very flavorful, or stouts, and kind of getting over fatigued on your palate, you have one of these, and it, it just sets you straight, cleans your palate off. Well, and the description said sessionable in reference to the ABV, but sessionable also has to do with the intensity of the flavor. I love sours, but... Sometimes you can't sit out in the sun and have two, three sours. It's just too much. This is sessionable because it is a lower ABV, but also because it is clean on the palate. Yeah, like, I have no flavor in my mouth right now. There you go. It's like a pineapple sorbet. Well, that's why I said intermezzo. Oh, that's between courses. That's right, not a right. music term. That's how I was going about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard intermezzo. Uh, <laughs> oh. And poor Uncle Todd's over I there feel not so drinking. Bad for him. He's not drinking, and he's <laughs> like, Uncle Todd, oh. can we get a tea update? How would you rate your tea? That was very good. It's a um, Trader Joe's decaf 
English breakfast tea. So it was good. I enjoy it. On a scale of zero to five, on unteed, what would you give it? In quarter point increments, don't forget. <laughs> is it, is that, that's the zero to five scale? Yes, sir. I feel like it should be called unbagged. Yeah, I give it a solid 4.25. Yeah. Wow. That's a heavy rating. Yeah, where do you go from there? 4.25. <laughs> He's locked into that now. He's, <laughs> we've made that mistake sometimes. You go too high at the beginning, and they're like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I know. All right. We got two tracks left. Yes, we do. And we have to pick the next jukebox. Yes, so, we do. The next track is the sixth single from the album, released in September of 1983. This one finished at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. And that's the song PYT, parenthetically, Pretty Young Thing. admissible in court <laughs> I, I, I just i don't know well she was just 17 you know what i mean yeah. you didn't know that term so while okay, the clip yeah. was playing i said to abigail i think i picked the clip that includes the word tenderoni yes and, I and she said, goes what's what that i go you didn't look that up no i mean i i read it in the lyrics and i was like what the heck does that mean well tenderoni is an easy to make stovetop macaroni product trademarked and produced by the stokely van camp food company since its withdrawal from the U.S. market, the name has evolved into an urban slang term for a younger love interest of either gender or someone too young to talk to or become involved with. Well, wow. I would say it is an admission uh, in court, Walter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the whole concept of this bothers me, and yet it's not my <laughs> least favorite on the album. This comes in at number seven. Okay. But it isn't good. And, no. the, and the lyrics moved away down because musically, I think it's very fun. And I love the way that they do the acronyms in that digital yes, sort it of. it is fun. You know, they use the keyboard. P-Y-T. Right. And TLC. TLC. I think that's really good. I, yes. So musically, I like this song a lot. And when I was going through it, you know, you just listen to it. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's good. This might be up near the top. And then you really dive into the lyrics. You're like, no, this is not good. So, yeah, I get some strong feelings about the lyrics. And yet it's still not my least favorite song on the album. Nor mine. I know where this is heading because yeah, we only have one track. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. It really is cringeworthy given his history 
that he wrote this song. And like, this all happened years after this song. I mean, the fact that two of the other songs are The Girl Is Mine and then what was the other one? Be My Girl. It's a lot of girls. It's a lot of young. It's a lot of... A lot mm. of trying to prove something. Throwing it out yes. there. Yeah. And, and that was kind of my thought because like, Again, we're going back to the fact that I have had this preconceived notion of Michael Jackson my whole life because literally the first thing I ever learned about him was the trial, right? And it does come across as, oh, I'm this big, strong man with all these women when, like, he was accused of fondling little boys. So it it does come across as, like, having something to prove or not projecting per se, but what's it called when you go so far in the opposite direction to prove, you know, compensating, yeah, overcompensating. For it. But this is cringeworthy regardless of the backstory. You don't need, 100%. To, you don't need to know all that history to go, 100%. Well, this is a little weird. Yeah, but it's a really fun song musically. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the music's good. Again, I don't really focus on the lyrics. It, it, I think musically it's a really nice song to listen to good song to listen to good song to move to it's interesting how they maybe changed some of the tones of the synthesizers and did some work through maybe some of the typical guitar pedals and things like that but again i didn't focus on the lyrics because i think it would just ruin the experience yeah that's weird right i didn't focus on the lyrics because it would ruin the experience it's an interesting <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah i agree with you todd i musically loved that song and probably had it higher initially you know first time i listened to whatever and kind of moved it down as i really took a deeper dive in the lyrics not that it, you need to take a super deep dive i mean the no, story is pretty it's out in the open it's literally in the title but the minute i read the word tenderoni i was like oh no it's a, so you knew a, that word? Oh, I knew that word as soon as I saw it. <laughs> I had no idea about tenderoni. Why did I just you know the today. word tenderoni? It's just a, it's a vocabulary word. What do you mean? It's certainly not an SAT word. I no, don't. it's not an SAT word. They don't <laughs> test for that on the SATs. I don't think they do. They didn't. When Michael I took Jackson SATs. is to tenderoni as. <laughs> <laughs> I think that word is only known to people who uh, visit the dark web, as far as I'm concerned, because I certainly didn't know anything about it. I don't know Dad, why I knew a, that, that term. That sounds like an accusation. Have you been on the dark uh, yeah. web recently? I haven't been on the dark web. <laughs> no, I just, it's, I don't know why I knew the word, but I, <laughs> yeah. I, I've known the word. It's oddly suspicious. Well, you know, I am a wordsmith, so maybe <laughs> just somewhere along the way, I picked up a vocabulary word. <laughs> Stop accusing me here. What's going on? We're not accusing. I know you're not. Really? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the high versus the low ABV beers, but it doesn't matter if you have five of them because <laughs> you're going to get the ABV anyway. Are we finally to the last track? I guess we are. That brings us to track nine. A good closer for the album, I might add. One of only two songs that's not a single on the album, and that's The Lady in My Life. Oh, wow. She's an adult, finally. Maybe. Trust in my heart and meet me in paradise. Now is the time, girl. You're every wonder in this world to me. A treasure time won't steal away. So listen to my heart. Lay your body close to mine. 
I think that was his way of trying to make like a wedding track or something that people would maybe all Ooh. jump on like, oh, this is our, our song. I picked this song for you, baby. That's actually a great it take. Just, it has that like wedding <laughs> song kind of. It uh, does, but specifically like an 80s wedding song. I was going to say, it's, it's everything that's it's wrong with the 80s. 80s. It's very <laughs> 80s. Package, yeah. It sure is. This is my least favorite song. It's my least favorite. There we go. Hey, finally, we met. Nice. And this is the only place this song can be on the album. So when I said, oh, I think it's a good closer, it's because where else would you put it? Yeah. It's a downer no matter where you put it. Uh And whereas I thought the vocal performance on Human Nature worked... Mm-hmm. This is a similar performance, and I don't care for it here. A wedding track is an interesting yes. interpretation of that song. I think that's really smart because that's exactly what this plays like. And I've been to these weddings in the 80s where something like this is going to play. <laughs> this brings to mind a late night experience in a cocktail lounge in a hotel somewhere where it's dark and smoky and there's somebody there playing the piano and the singer singing and people aren't really paying attention, but... That's what's going on. It's a very specific memory. Can you give me the date and time? It's not from personal experience, <laughs> just more from watching maybe um, some of the uh, Saturday Night Live lounge lizard parodies and things like that. Yes. That's where I would picture it. The uh, Bill Murray lounge singer right. doing this. You'll have to go look at some of those yeah, clips. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Abigail's like, what are you guys talking about? A little before my time. I do love Bill Murray. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. I'm sure that stuff's available on YouTube. So, yeah, I didn't really care for the song on a lot of levels. And on a nine-song album, how do you go, well, I would have just dropped this one because now you're down to eight. No, but I think the wedding song is a genius call because it really does sound like it an does. 80s wedding song. It's not a good song because have you ever heard it at a wedding? Well, I didn't go to a lot of weddings well, in the that's 80s. True. Yeah, that's I, true. I don't think I ever remember hearing that song. I, quite I've honestly. never heard this. Well, it certainly didn't pan out. It's not a right. m- not, not a memorable song. Right. So that, I think that's the thing. It yeah. just doesn't stick to you. Yeah. And so, yeah, dead at the bottom for me. Yeah. So that wraps up Thriller. Abigail, what are your overall thoughts on the album? I don't think I will be listening to this one. I'm not going to sit down and be like, oh, I feel like listening to Thriller today. I don't think that will ever happen. But I will continue to listen to the song Thriller every Halloween and Billie Jean and Beat It have places in my musical catalog. I just don't think I'm going to ever listen to this album again as a whole, if I'm honest. But I'm glad I did because I had never heard it. And if I recall, it was the number one album in the year it was released. Was that right? Oh, yeah. It's right now the second best-selling album in the United States of all time behind the Eagles' greatest hits collection. Wow. And 70 million copies worldwide. So it's... It's a phenomenon. 70 million in one... Because I had to download it for this podcast. (laughs) I think it had 10 Grammy Awards, too. It was some incredible number of Grammy Awards. But let's see. Grammy. But yeah, this being the phenomenon that it was, I think it absolutely earned a place in the Pops on Hops canon. And obviously, neither of us was going to pick it. So I am very glad, Uncle Todd, that you submitted it to the jukebox and that we drew it. Because, I mean, what's a music podcast without discussing 
the number two best-selling album of all time. Yeah, and, and the other thing too, Abigail, you have a built-in negative connotation of Michael Jackson because of your exposure to him probably at, at, at the worst time in his life, whereas the, the 70s and early 80s, he, he, it, that was not, you know, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was this, a, a phenom, really, if you will, um, from the time he was, a whatever he was, six years old in the Jackson 5 or whatever, and he just continued to grow. And this just became like the apex of this unbelievable career. And so I think it was kind of a positive time, and especially where I was. You know, I, I met my future bride and I was in Chicago and I was, the Bears were soon to win the Super Bowl. And, you know, it was just, even though it was hard times, I mean, it was very, very challenging as far as my training and all of that. It was such a great, you know, experience. And this was part of it. And so our two views on this whole thing are very different. But I thought it was such an iconic album that, if I didn't pick it and no one else did, you guys would be missing out on this amazing, amazing album. I agree with you. It's like a benchmark in music. You said it was the apex of his career. It's also kind of at, it wasn't the beginning of his career, right? He was with the Jacksons, but this was really the beginning of his solo career of any note. And it just blew up. And, you know, sometimes when an album blows up like that, you wonder what kind of pressure does that put on an artist subsequently to that? And you can look at the rest of his career after that and think he really struggled to try to hit this benchmark again. And that's rough for an artist, you know, to have such a massive hit and then be locked into like, how do I reproduce that? So there's another pressure that you put onto him. And it's hard for Abigail to go back in time and realize what that was like when he was just barely an adult when his album came out. I have to look. Oh, gosh. But wow. he's super young. And, you know, to have all the success at that age remember he died he was 51 he died in 2009 yeah so yeah i i agree with you todd and i think your point about it being we we've had a conversation when we get through this list of where we're sharing stuff like going back and pulling up a list of the 500 best albums of all time like off a rolling stone list and doing some of these iconic albums that whether one of us or the other one has a familiarity with it to still talk about it because it's an important milestone in music and uh, this is a great one to introduce that so Again, thanks for sharing that. You bet. Yeah, thank you. So we have two more orders of business. We have to rate this last beer and we have to pick a next jukebox episode. And I have a set of hands for you here in Bluffton that's going to do that for you in your stead <laughs> because I have the actual tiles and cards here today. So I'll let Walter do that for our next jukebox episode. First, we'll rate the beer. Well, I do have to say while you're tasting your last sip, I did wait a long time to get that album. And I think it was just for the Thriller song. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, beat it, Billie Jean, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah. but the other parts of the album, I, I think I forgot all about all that. This has happened on the podcast before. <laughs> we call it the David Bowie moment because I gave Abigail Let's Dance by David Bowie. And then when we reviewed it, I wasn't sure I liked it anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you totally did. They nailed it. That's exactly my feeling. It was nice to go down memory road. Um, a lot of it, I didn't, I didn't hear every track, but uh, there wasn't a lot I remembered. All right, back to the beer. Once again, this is the Sitting in Limbo Sour. This is the 3.3 pH kettle sour and i'm gonna give it a 4.0 i am totally fascinated by how clean drinking this is how quickly it leaves the palate how delicious it is without any hint of fruit i mean it's just on the merits of the beer ingredients that make it taste this way and to me that is fascinating i agree and i'm giving it a 4.0 also 
Wow. I'm really anxious to try it with a couple of those other things. I as well. I think this is really an interesting base beer for Anything. additions of fruit or, yeah. or soda at the bar, but yeah. also do you use that as your base for some of the other fruited sours? No, no, it stands on its own. That's its own yeah. thing. Yeah. How yep. about that? That's amazing. It sure does. Beer-wise, we've done very well. We did do very well today. Album-wise, we did really well. I hope the wild card of Zoom guests and live guests and everything worked out okay. I'm going to go to the next jukebox pick. So the way this works, Walter, is Mm -hmm. there's about 36 albums that people have submitted like Todd, and they sit in a grid. Okay. So we have four columns, and we have nine rows. So we're going to have you pick a tile that's going to get us the column, and then we're going to have you pick a card and that's going to give us the row. The only wild card here is we try not to have repeats too often. So we're banishing, not banishing, that's a bad word, Todd. We love having you. I'm not saying banish, <laughs> but we, in order to get more different people on, anybody this year who's already been in, we we're not going to repeat. So if one of those albums come up, we won't repeat it. And that's Francis Walton, Todd, and it's also the two guys from the procession, right? It's Greg Jong and Greg Paul Zawaki. So out of these four, pick I'm one of those picking four Tiles. Yes, sir. All right. Looks like we have a D. A D. All right. Is it doggone, doggone? <laughs> the doggone tile's gone. The doggone tile. It's gone. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa. It's gone. That's All right. We got funny. a D. All right. We got a lot of repeats in here. Do we? Okay. We do. Well, we'll pick cards till we land on one that's not a repeat. <laughs> and the card number is Six of Hearts. Six of Hearts. Okay, this Uh is not a repeat that we listed. We have a winner. This is Parents Just Don't Understand (laughs) by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Fresh Prince. Prince. Oh, that's my brother. Submitted by another uncle of mine. Uncle Derek making a comeback. Uncle Derek Hummel Sr. And I have a feeling that this one is going to be a real hoot. (laughs) All right, Uncle Derek, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. So why don't you share in the meantime the next album you're giving to me? Yes. So we are recently coming off of a phone a friend episode from you where you phoned our friend Dave Zalatoris and we reviewed Smithereens 11 by the Smithereens. I'm going to use my phone a friend episode for this next one. And I'm going to call upon my friend Lori Willard. So Lori is from North Carolina and she traveled home earlier in the summer. And we were just coming off the recording of Francis's album. Mute Math, and we had the Ginger's Revenge ginger beer. And so I said to Lori, bring me back all the Ginger's Revenge you can. And while you're at it, whatever beer you find from North Carolina that you think we would enjoy, just grab a bunch. I'll pay you for all of it. Plus a finder's fee if you want. Well, she brought back an obscene amount of beer. (laughs) And so I said, Lori... Instead of a finder's fee, how about you want to come on the pod and you can pick an album and we can drink some of the beer you brought us. So she has chosen RKS by Rainbow Kitten Surprise. So that is what we are going to be reviewing next time and drinking a selection of beers from the North Carolina Appalachian region. Well, you got me on this one. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, they're from North Carolina. so All right. So it all fits. It matches up. All right. Rainbow... Rainbow Kitten Surprise Kitten is surprise. the band. The album is RKS. All right. We'll do that awesome. next. Walter <laughs> won't be with us. Uncle no. Todd won't Let be with know. us. That's our next one then. Yes, it is. In the meantime, if you need more Pops on Hops content, you can find us on all social media platforms. Facebook, X, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod. Or you can email us at popsonhopspod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. Or you can visit our super cool website. 
popsonhopspod.com. That's where we have bonus photos, videos, and other materials related to each of our bi-weekly episodes. That is also where you can find our virtual jukebox, where you can submit your favorite album for a chance to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops... And Pops... And Uncle Todd... And Walt... We'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye. The beer is mine. It's mine. No, 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 it's mine. The beer is mine. All mine. The doggone beer here is mine. <laughs> I'm a drinker, not a fighter. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Such a good sport during our <laughs> technical our, difficulties. <laughs> the behind the scenes on this is going to be more interesting than the episode. I know. During our test last night, he almost lit our house on fire. Yeah, I was trying to burn down There's... the condo. I'll tell you that story later, Todd. <laughs> You'll want to hear that one.